Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled Prime. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, we're going to resume our series in the book of Colossians today called Prime. I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Colossians chapter 4 and take out the sermon note handout that's in your worship folder. If you uh, forgot your Bible, just raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring one to you. We can loan you a Bible if you need one. As you turn there, allow me to just uh, refresh your memory. Rick, we need one here. Thanks. Uh, Allow me to just refresh your memory on this important New Testament book. Uh, The book of Colossians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Colossae while Paul was under house arrest in Rome uh, for preaching the gospel. While he was incarcerated there, a man named Epaphras uh, traveled to see Paul in Rome uh, and needed Paul's assistance evicting false teachers from the church in Colossae. Uh, Epaphras is believed to have planted that church and wanted Paul's help getting rid of the threats in the church that were trying to take it over. And so that's at least what half of the letter is about. Our theme verse for this series is Colossians 1.18. If you haven't done so already, I'd encourage you to underline it in your Bible. I've done so in mine and marked next to the margin key verse that sums up what this letter is about. Uh, Let's say it out loud together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. To be preeminent means to be above or before others, to be superior to others or surpassing others. Practically speaking, it means that if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, what he wants, as explained in his word, Uh, should take priority over your comfort, your feelings, your goals, and your opinions. Uh, Many commentators separate the book of Colossians into two halves. Uh, Chapters 1 and 2, Paul is very theological and technical about the gospel. But then in chapters 3 and 4, he gets very practical in explaining, uh, here's, here's how your theological knowledge should affect the way you live. Or another way that I said it is, uh, what we claim to believe should shape the way we behave. And so this is why he addressed the way in, in, in chapter 3, just as a review, in chapter 3, Paul addressed the way we should think as believers. Then he talked about how we should grow by putting off sin and putting on holy behavior. He then talked about what our faith should look like at home and at work in chapter three. Now as we begin chapter four, uh, Paul talks about what we should do with this gospel that he so passionately and uh, so passionately explained, excuse me, and defended in chapters one and two. In essence, he says this, and this is our big idea for today, In the four verses, five verses we're going to be looking at, Jesus uses found people to reach lost people. Jesus uses found people 
to reach lost people. If I were to go around the room today and to ask those of you who know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior how you came to know him, I'm confident that most of you would name a person that God used to introduce you to Christ. It, it could be a parent, a grandparent, perhaps a friend or a Sunday school teacher. Uh, maybe it was at vacation Bible school. But this is because one of, the, one of the many reasons the Lord saves lost sinners is so that he can then use them to reach other sinners with the gospel. It's been my experience, at least anecdotally, I think I've observed over the years that at least nine times out of ten, the Lord uses an existing believer to make a new believer. Uh, rarely, very rarely, does he circumvent people to go right to the person directly, like, say, he did with the Apostle Paul. You might remember Paul's conversion from Acts chapter 9 on the Damascus Road, where it says that suddenly a light from heaven shone down on him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That just doesn't happen often. Most of the time, it's people like you and me sharing the gospel with people, unbelievers that we know and love. Thus, Paul answers one big question in the verses we're going to be looking at today in chapter 4, and that is, how do we go about sharing the gospel with our unbelieving friends and family, neighbors and co-workers? This is significant because as an evangelist, church planter and pastor, Paul is the Apostle Paul is debunking in this passage the myth that many church members have. And it's this. Well, I'm not articulate enough to, uh, or smart enough, and I don't have a seminary degree, so I, I, I can't share my faith. That's the pastor's job. I'll just invite my unbelieving friends, neighbors, relatives, and coworkers to church so then he can witness to them. As you can tell from my funny voice, that is not the way it's supposed to work. Uh, in fact, the 19th century bishop, uh, J.C. Ryle, oh, love J.C. Ryle, if you can get your hands on any of his stuff, you need to. He says it better than I can when he wrote this. A holy believer is a walking sermon. He or she preaches far more than a minister does, for he preaches, or she, all week. Shaming the unconverted, sharpening the converted, and showing to all what grace can do. So in other words, uh, J.C. Ryle's saying, you guys reach more people and are exposed to more unbelievers than I ever will be. Uh, and so, so you have opportunities that I never will get to interact and share your faith with unbelievers. Let's look at the text in chapter 4, starting in verse 2. Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. He shares four keys in this passage for effective witnessing. The first key on your outline is the key of prayer. 
the key of prayer. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Literally, in the Greek text, it means to persist or persevere, endure, or to be strong in prayer. Well, why do we have to persist in prayer? Well, because prayer is not like a microwave where you just put your request in, close the door, you enter how much time when you need the answer, select the power level and push start, and then voila, out pops the answer to your prayer request. Praying for the salvation of unbelievers not only prepares their heart to hear the gospel, but it also prepares our hearts for sharing it. Fervent prayer, focused fervent prayer, has always been the spark that ignited some of the greatest revivals in church history. Uh, there are documents and books that have recorded uh, the writings of powerful preachers like Jonathan Edwards in the uh, 18th century and D.L. Moody in the 19th century. They feared preaching without the support of prayer teams behind the scenes that were interceding uh, and praying that the gospel would go forth and grip hearts. Next, the apostle explains in more detail how we should be praying for our gospel witness. So here's letter A. He says, be watchful as you're praying. Uh, literally, keep awake or be alert. Uh, like a soldier guarding a city wall through the night. Uh, however, Paul's not talking about physically falling asleep. He's talking about spiritually falling asleep. Uh, falling asleep to where you aren't thinking spiritually during your day or your week as you go through the motions of your life routine, not looking for opportunities or who God is bringing into your life that he might want you to share the gospel with. So as we pray for the unbelievers in our lives, we should be on the lookout for things God might be doing in their lives to make them more open to hearing the gospel. So Paul says, be watchful. Next, he says, be thankful. That's letter B. Be thankful. With thanksgiving, what, what, what should we be thankful for? Well, we should be thankful that the Lord sent people into our lives to share the good news about Jesus Christ so we could hear it. I'm thankful for a Camps Crusade staff member, a linebacker on my college football team, and a dynamic speaker at an Athletes in Action conference. God used all three men when I was a freshman in college to bring me to faith in Christ. I'm thankful they loved me enough and loved the Lord enough to boldly share the gospel with me. But we can also be thankful for the fact that the Lord even wants to use us at all to share the gospel with others. He doesn't have to do that, but it is one of the greatest privileges you'll ever have, leading someone to faith in Christ. More on that later. Next, Paul says, let us see, be intentional. Be intentional, pray that God may open a door for the word. I'm always amazed at the perspective that Paul had while under house arrest in Rome. I have to be, if I was honest, uh, and I will be since we're in church, um, I, think, I think if I were Paul, I'd be writing here in Colossians 4, pray that I would get out of jail so I can share the gospel again. But Paul, he just amazes me with his perspective in that you know, he's obviously a glass half full guy. He says, eh, well, this is where God has me. Pray that the Lord would use me right here where I am. 
And so he's known for witnessing to the guards and servants that would bring him his meals. Uh, Sadly, though, (laughs) I think many Christians are afraid to even pray for God to open a door to share the gospel because they're afraid the Lord might just answer that prayer. It's sort of like the old saying you probably have heard, don't, don't pay for, pray for patience because God might send you a trial to make you more patient. Hopefully you'll agree with me, it's bad theology to avoid praying for things that are biblical because we're afraid of what God might do. Can, can we agree on that? That's not good. Thank you for agreeing with me. And all God's people said amen. <laughs> good. Half of you said amen. The very fact that God would want to use us to make heaven more full and hell more empty should inspire us instead of intimidating us. See, some some people hear messages or they see scripture verses on witnessing or the Great Commission and they go, oh, oh. I'm just overwhelmed. There's no way I could do that. Oh, I'm just terrified of sharing my faith. I want to challenge you to instead think another way today. And that is, wow, you mean the Lord would want to use me to help lead somebody to faith in Christ and to secure their eternity and forgiveness for their sins so that they would become part of the kingdom? Wow, that is amazing. But again, this is our big idea. Jesus uses found people to reach lost people. So there is the key of prayer. Prayer is very important in evangelism. Number two, Paul says, there's the key of proclamation. Proclamation is important. Well, what should we proclaim? Well, he says in verse three, the mystery of Christ. Well, what's the mystery? Uh, Is Paul saying that Jesus is mysterious? No, he's, he's basically saying, For centuries, we heard about this Messiah who was coming to save God's people and the Gentiles, the Hebrews and the Gentiles, and that this Messiah would unite them to become one family called the church. And it sounded so crazy that many wondered how would God do this? It was like a mystery. But now we know how God was going to do this. Paul, in essence, is saying, God sent his only son, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, crucified on the cross for our sins, buried and then resurrected three days later so he could offer salvation to the world. So that's the mystery. It's that we wondered how he was going to do it, and here's how he did it, and he did it in a way nobody expected. Paul also wanted prayer that if you look at your Bibles in verse four, that he would make the gospel message clear. Clarity is important because it's possible to under-explain the gospel and it's possible to over-explain it. It's also possible to explain it incorrectly. Uh, Doing so puts us at risk for sharing a false gospel. And this is bad because false gospels produce false converts. Uh, This was a problem in Paul's lifetime that he was trying to prevent, as you heard me say earlier in this series. It was a problem in Colossae. The issue of clarity is one of the first reasons I think some believers choose just not to share at all. 
In fact, here's four reasons that I have observed over the years and heard believers share with me why they just don't witness. Um, So letter A is they don't know the gospel well enough. They just don't know it. I have found that many believers are familiar with the gospel message. They, 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 they're familiar with it. They've heard it before, but they don't know how to explain it to anybody. There's a difference. Uh, this, this seems to be the result of not studying the gospel and the scriptures so they can understand it better. But still, there are others who are like I was as a young believer, um, my, my problem was not failing to understand the gospel, but rather not knowing how to share it in five minutes or less uh, before the person I was witnessing to lost interest and, or, or the plane ride was over or the bus ride was over. More on this later. Uh, another reason I have observed that some believers don't proclaim the gospel, letter B, is that they don't know any unbelievers. They, they don't know them. They, they kind of avoid them like a plague, as if some of the Bible verses they've learned might leak out of them if they touched an unbeliever or something, you know? Uh, uh, some Christians throw themselves so much into the life of the church that the only people they know are other believers, leaving no time left on their schedule to build a couple of relationships with unbelievers. Uh, they've become, as Paul Harvey once famously said, keepers of the aquarium instead of fishers of men. Or they overload their schedules so much with other things that they want to do, like sports and travel and all that, that they don't have time to do either, be part of the church or build relationships with unbelievers. And that's not good either. Jesus modeled the right kind of balance for us here in Luke 15 where we're told he occasionally dined with tax collectors and sinners. He was even criticized by the Pharisees for doing so. It says in Luke 15, 1 and 2, that they were attracted to Jesus. They were curious about him. They wanted to learn more about his message. Here's the third reason why I've observed uh, some believers don't proclaim the gospel. Let her see as they don't really love unbelievers. They don't care about them. It's sort of this unspoken, subtle thinking of, uh, good luck, you're on your own. I found Jesus on my own, so every man for himself kind of thinking. Some Christians prove this by not praying for the salvation of unbelievers, not inviting them to church, and just criticizing their unbiblical thinking. Sometimes I see this on social media. I cringe at what some Christians put out on social media because I I, I look at it through the eyes of my unsaved parents and family members, and I think, my goodness, why does this person not realize what they're saying is just giving more ammunition for the adversary to use? to, Like my unbelieving family to go, see that right there? That's why I don't go to church because that's how those Christians are. It's, oh, that's another sermon for another time. But still, there are other believers who do have relationships with unbelievers, but they're never willing to bring up the gospel because they love those relationships more than they love the people they have them with. 
In other words, they don't bring up the gospel because they fear losing the relationships. At the root of this, when you strip away all the layers of excuses, according to J.C. Ryle, um, J.C. Ryle says it's selfishness. He writes this, the highest form of selfishness is that of a man or a woman who is content to go to heaven alone. But this is also a theological issue too. You see, because if we believe what God's word says about unbelievers, uh, and we talked about this at the end of chapter two, or sorry, chapter one, uh, it's the message uh, I preached in Colossians one called Jesus First in My Testimony, where Paul reminded the Colossians of who they were before they knew Christ. Well, if we believe what God's word says about unbelievers, that they are under God's wrath, dead in their trespasses, slaves to their sin, and on their way to hell, then we should care about where they will spend eternity. Because those things used to be true of us. It's so, it's in essence, the, we're applying the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of uh, anthropology, meaning what does God's word say about man, to our witnessing. God says people are lost without Christ and that they will suffer the full consequences of their sin without him. So they don't really love unbelievers. Uh, The fourth reason some Christians don't share their faith, and again, this is not all of them. These are just four that I could think of, the common ones I see, is that they don't believe God could use them. them. Uh, there, There are just some believers who have an insecurity about themselves and about the Lord where they they don't think God could use them. This is obviously unbiblical thinking because, you know, look at the disciples, for example. The men that Jesus chose were average Joes just like us. Uh, If you read the gospel accounts, you will see they struggled to believe Jesus, to get how he was thinking about things, and Jesus got frustrated with them at times because they were dense. They were like knuckleheads. And, but there's hope in that in the sense that we can identify with the disciples. And, you know, man, I'd, I'd be struggling to, you know, understand that too. If I saw somebody walking on water in the middle of the Sea of Galilee in a storm, I'd think it was a ghost too. I mean, that's just not something you see every day. Other Christians don't believe God could use them because they're afraid of failing God as if witnessing entirely depends on them. They, they, they forget the fact that the Lord isn't looking for believers who are impeccable. He just needs believers that are available. It's all he asks for. Just be available. And then there are other believers who are afraid of sharing their faith because if the unbeliever rejects the gospel, they interpret it as a personal rejection. They, they, they forget that the Lord measures evangelistic success by proclamations, not conversions or decisions. All the Lord expects us to do is to be faithful in spreading the message accurately and then leaving the results to him. And if somebody chooses not to receive Christ, but we've been faithful in explaining the gospel, that's between them and the Lord. All he wanted us to do was just be the messenger. It it doesn't reflect on us if 
there are no numbers that we can add up as results. Our job is simply to make the true gospel available. It's not to change their heart or to water down the message to make it more acceptable to them. It's just to say, here's what Jesus and the apostles said in the scriptures. If you want eternal life or forgiveness, this is what you have to do. It's a matter of fact. Still, there are other believers that don't believe God could use them to lead someone to faith in Christ because they fear being asked a theological question they don't know the answer to. And that's okay. This sometimes happens. I find it doesn't happen as often as you might think. But if it ever does, you can just email your question to Bob Hudson at bhudson at vanguardbible.org. That's B as in Bob Hudson at vanguardbible.org. Seriously, if, if you're in a situation like that, you can just tell the person you're witnessing to, that's a great question, you know? Let me, let me research that and get back to you on that. And you can talk to me or email me if you need help. And then I'll send you to Bob. <laughs> um, Paul says we should pray for unbelievers and proclaim the gospel to them as the Lord gives us opportunity because Jesus uses found people to reach lost people. Next, if you would look at verse five, the apostle writes, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. So here's number three, the third key for effective witnessing is the key of perception. The key of perception. In order to be an effective witness for Christ, we must be able to discern who does not know him and then be careful not to do anything to undermine our credibility so they'll want to hear the gospel from us. This is why Paul says in verse five, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, or some translations say, conduct yourself wisely because you're always being watched. The apostle then gives two bits of counsel here, breaking down, I broke them down into points A and B in your outline. Uh, first of all, uh, walk in wisdom. I think what he's saying there is protect the name of Christ. That's letter A, protect the name of Christ. With the Lord's help, we shouldn't act as though we are better than unbelievers, nor should we act like unbelievers to try and fit in. It means instead we should make winning unbelievers to Christ more important than winning them to our political party, for example. That's another thing that makes me cringe is when I see believers and I'm friends with on Facebook or Twitter post their political convictions and I go, oh, you know, and then all the unbelievers chime in with their views and, and arguing breaks out and I sit there and I read the comments and I go, how, how is this? eternally redemptive. It does the Lord no good if you win your political argument on social media but lose any credibility you might have to share the gospel with your victims. That's why my, even myself, I've reined in my post and I don't post anymore about political things. I keep my thoughts to myself because I want, I want people to see me talking about my family and my faith in Christ if they go through my Facebook feed. So protect the name of Christ. Let B, Paul says, uh, discern who does not know Christ. Notice he says in verse five, 
towards outsiders. They are those that are outside the family of God. They have not yet been called in to the church through their conversion. An outsider is anyone who has not yet repented of their sins and trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. We must discern this because one of the biggest tricks the devil plays on believers is to deceive us into thinking someone is saved when they are actually not because he doesn't want us to share the true gospel with them. So we need to protect the name of Christ. We need to discern who does not know Christ. Next, uh, letter C, we need to capitalize on opportunities. That's what Paul says in verse five. Making the best use of time. That phrase in the Greek text, um, it comes from a word that means to buy out or to purchase completely. Uh, it, some translations render it to make the most of every opportunity. It was a term commonly used in the first century marketplace for snatching up good deals. Uh, now, please don't interpret this the wrong way. This is not a biblical justification for power shopping or, or you know, Black Friday or anything like that or Cyber Monday. Basically, Paul is saying here we should capitalize on the opportunities to share Christ just like we would capitalize on a great bargain at a store. Uh, so for example, if you get an opportunity with a coworker to take a business trip and you're gonna be in the car together for a couple hours, there's an opportunity for you to talk about your faith in Christ and what means most to you. Um, if you get an opportunity to, um, uh, maybe you get invited over to a, a coworker's home or you're meeting with your unbelieving family for the holidays and you're gonna be sharing a meal together. There may be an opportunity for you to bring up your faith. Many believers think there are very few opportunities to share the gospel these days. However, there are more than we actually think. This has been proven by research, actually. Researcher and president of LifeWay Church Resources, Dr. Tom Rayner, uh, wrote this in a study he published a few years ago. Quote, after working on two major research projects over a four-year period, our research team discovered a permeating myth in most churches across our land. There is a perception that all unchurched persons are anti-church and anti-gospel. Thus, many Christians remain reticent to share their faith or even invite an unchurched person to church. In reality, over eight out of 10 unchurched persons in our studies indicated a willingness or desire to go to church or an openness to it. So we need to have perception. Next, if you would, look at verse six. Finally, Paul says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I think this is, again, referencing witnessing uh, so that when you get opportunities or unbelievers ask you questions, you can do so with grace and gentleness. So here, number four is this, the key of presence. The key of presence. Similar to what Paul alluded to in verse five, if we're going to be effective witnesses for Christ, 
we need to be around unbelievers and aware of how we're talking in their presence. Uh, let your speech always be gracious. This is uh, the word in the original language means to be pleasant or attractive or charming or winsome. Um, not, not a, it's the opposite of a biting, sarcastic sense of humor or putting down or ribbing or back in when I was a kid, they used to call it giving somebody the raspberries, you know. Um, just, that, that usually doesn't work well with people you don't know well. I'll just tell you that from experience. Um, uh, he says, instead, our speech should be seasoned with salt. Uh, salt was used on food in the first century as a seasoning and a preservative. The other thing that salt does is it generates thirst. Just as Mexican restaurants give out free chips and salsa in order to make you thirsty enough to buy more drinks, the speech of a Christ follower should make unbelievers thirsty to know more about our faith. And this is why Paul says at the end of verse six, so you may know how to answer. Just as Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15, we should always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have with gentleness and respect. My college pastor and mentor used to always uh, tell me, uh, ministers need to be ready to preach, pray, or die at any time. That always stuck with me for some reason. However, I think it's good advice for any believer. You should be ready to preach the gospel, pray, or die at any time. So, the key of presence, being around unbelievers and interacting with them and prayerfully looking for opportunities. So, how do we apply this passage? There are two applications that come to mind. Um, first of all, I want to encourage you to start praying for unbelievers in your life. Start praying for them. One way you can do this is by using the extra handout in your worship folder that's uh, titled uh, 10 Ways to Pray for an Unbeliever. This is a list that I uh, put together and developed a few years back, and I found it to be helpful in, in my own life and praying for unbelievers that I know, but also others have told me it's helped them on how to pray for relatives or neighbors, coworkers. Uh, each verse that's referenced on that list, you can look up the verse and pray the verse back to the Lord and pray for that person and for an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Another way that you can pray for unbelievers is to ask them the question, how can I be praying for you? I've not yet met an unbeliever who turned down prayer. No, 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 I'm good, you don't need to pray for me. Is there a charge? No, 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 I don't want to do it. But here's what that allows you to do. It can be a way to get your foot in the door to talk about spiritual things. So, for example, you could ask, hey, you know, I, I just want to know how I could be praying for you. I'm a Christian, and I go to a fantastically awesome church with a rock star pastor and, and uh, you know, with a cool haircut, and I just wanted to see if there's anything I can pray for you. Oh, so glad you asked. You know, my grandmother's actually in the hospital. And so you can be praying for the grandmother, and then a few days later, follow up with the neighbor. Hey, how's your grandma doing? And what that shows is that you care for them, 
and that you have an interest in spiritual and eternal things. And you can then strike up conversations about prayer and about the Lord by interacting over their prayer requests. Sometimes the Lord will answer prayer in their lives because of you and your faith, not because of their faith. So start praying for unbelievers in your life. Uh, number two, the second application that comes to mind is learn how to share the gospel simply and clearly. I used to take forever to explain the gospel to an unbeliever because I, I always thought I had to start in Genesis with the fall, transition to Exodus and Leviticus to explain the Jewish sacrificial system and how that pointed to, to Jesus as the one-time final sacrifice in Hebrews. And then I jumped to Isaiah to explain how the prophecies of the coming Messiah would help us understand the meaning of Christmas, and then I would close with a brief overview of Easter. Okay, I'm kidding. Sort of. <laughs> This all changed several years ago when I attended an evangelism training class that taught me how to share the gospel with confidence, clarity, and brevity. I've included a simple copy of that presentation in the worship folder. It's on the opposite side of the <coughs> 10 ways to pray for an unbeliever. Uh, it's an acrostic of the word faith, F-A-I-T-H, and each point in the acrostic stands for a part of the gospel, so it's easy to memorize and it's very easy to explain. Um, each letter stands for a part of the gospel, and there's a, a memory verse that you can memorize, and uh, if you just learn it, memorize the verses, you'll be ready to share Christ anytime, any place with anybody. And it's great because you can even scribble it out on a napkin over coffee or lunch with somebody uh, if, that you're trying to witness to. You can. Just say, I, I'm going to use the word faith in each letter. I've done this before. I've done it in restaurants, hospitals, and just laid it out. I've done it in my office, in a counseling appointment. So learn how to share the gospel simply and clearly. Look, I hope you hear my heart here this morning, folks, and that is that the most fulfilling experience you will ever get to do on this earth is to play a part in leading someone to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. It is better than any rides at Disneyland. It's better than any vacation you could ever take. Yes, it's better than your wedding day or the birth of your kids and grandkids. This is because the fruit of that experience, you sharing the gospel and living out your faith before an unbeliever and then allowing the Lord to use you to bring them to faith in Christ, that experience will spread beyond your sphere of influence because that person will then go and share the gospel with their friends and relatives and their kids. It will also, the internal impact will outlive your lifetime. And your obedience and sharing the gospel is pleasing to the Lord. So, I once read something uh, similar to a fable that describes a hypothetical conversation between the Heavenly Father and Jesus. Uh, it goes like this. When, when Jesus had ascended into heaven after his earthly ministry, the Father asked him, did you complete your mission, my son? To which Jesus replied, yes, it is finished. 
The father then asked, has the whole world heard of you? And Jesus replied, no, no, not yet. Then his father asked, well, then what is your plan? So Jesus said, I have left 12 men and some other followers behind on earth to carry our message to the whole world. So then the father asked, well, if that doesn't work, what's your plan B? To which Jesus replied, there is no plan B. Jesus uses found people to reach lost people. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, just first want to start off by being thankful, as Paul told us to be in prayer in verse 2. Lord, thank you for moving your spirit in the hearts of other believers so they would come and share Christ with us. I've got names and faces in my mind, and I know others here do as well. Thank you for sending them. It's scary to think, Lord, how messy our lives would be had we not been called by you and reached by you through other obedient believers. Father, would you please give us opportunities to share the gospel message with unbelievers you've placed in our lives. Would you give us discernment, Lord, on who you've placed and where you've placed them, and would you help us to discern the opportunities you're giving us? Lord, would you help us please to be believers that walk in wisdom, that make the best use of the time, that are gracious and have speech seasoned with salt, Lord. Would you, would you help us to learn how to share the gospel simply and clearly, to learn just the key verses that talk about sin and faith and repentance and redemption so that we can be used by you. Thank you, Lord, again, that you would want to use us. Forgive us, Lord, please, for the times where we have feared men more than we feared you. Forgive us, Lord, for the times that we have criticized unbelievers who are only doing what they were born to do, and that's sin, because they don't know any better. They've not been born again. They don't have the Holy Spirit within them. And Lord, we just look forward to how you might use us this year. Please do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.